Usually in the evening, I would pick a section of Scripture that goes with a basic truth of the Christian faith. Tonight, I'm varying that because this Sunday, we have been thinking about one of our pastors leaving. So from Acts chapter 16, hear the word of the Lord, these five verses. And they went through the region of Pergia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is the word of our Lord. In my time as a pastor, I've preached a number of sermons that we call installation sermons. These are sermons that are preached usually on a weeknight when a pastor has been called to a new congregation and we do what is sort of anachronistically in our English language, we install him. That is to say, we officially recognize him and set him apart for the pastoral work in a congregation through the blessing of the Lord. About six years ago this time, that happened when Pastor Dan was ordained and installed in this church. I am glad for that process, even though I was not here when Pastor Dan was installed. That process brings uniformity and clarity, consistency to what we do when we have a new pastor. It's a good process. But in looking through our book of church order, if you don't know what that is, that's a book that we use, we've agreed to, as part of the OPC to use as part of what guides us in the way that our church works. If you look through the BCO, you would see that in chapter 20, there's a whole set of guidelines for what you do when a pastor is installed. But there is not a place, as far as I can tell, in the book of church order that tells us what to do tonight when a pastor is going to be leaving. It is what I would describe as a curious omission in the book of church order, and it's not unique to our church, our local church, or to the OPC. I'm something of a denominational hybrid, having been in a couple, and in those denominations there is no uninstalling guidance either. Although there are various steps that must happen when a local congregation goes about releasing a pastor from his call, again I say, there's no particular guidance for what to do in an evening like this. Tonight, Dan is a pastor in our congregation. Tomorrow, he's not. So what do we say? Why is there that omission? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. The first one is not so great, but it's a real reason. One of the reasons, I think, might be that sometimes the parting between a pastor and the congregation isn't a very pleasant one. It's not happy. That sort of unhappy leaving has occurred a number of times in a lot of churches over the last couple of years. There's been conflict and there's been heartache, and eventually the pastor might decide, my time here is up, and he sort of leaves. 
And even though there might be a happy face occasionally, at least we paste on and say, well, so glad for your service here. We're not fooling anyone. Everybody knows it's an unhappy leaving. Or maybe that's felt on behalf of the pastor himself. He's tried really, really hard over a long period of time. And instead of appreciation, instead of support and encouragement, he gets so discouraged, he finally throws his hands in the air, if not literally, at least in his heart, and he says, my time here is over, I'm gone. I can remember when I was early in pastoral ministry, there was a congregation I knew who did not even have a clue. The leaders did, but the congregation didn't. They did not have a clue that their pastor was leaving until they saw a U-Haul lined up at the parsonage. And then they wondered what in the world was happening, and secretly some of the leaders were happy to see him go. That's not happening here. We're really going to miss Dan and Nora as well as their children. Dan's not leaving in the middle of the night. <laughs> There's no great problem that precipitates them leaving. Which leaves us with this question. What should we think about a pastor being called somewhere else? Or to turn it into a bigger question, how do we discern when the Lord is calling us to do something else in a different place? And tonight I've selected a section of Scripture after this very long introduction to help us understand, at least to give us guidance, about that question of uncertainty when we want, or at least we perceive, that the Lord might be leading us to do something else. And here's, what I've, here's why I've decided to preach in these five verses. And hopefully this has a connection with your heart, whether tonight you're a pastor who's leaving along with his, along with his dear family, or you're a member of the congregation, if you've never left a pastoral call, but there's something else going on in your life, and you're wondering, where is the Lord leading me? And here's the point that it seems to me the Spirit is making through the story with the Apostle Paul. I'm going to say it once and then repeat it a number of times in this evening's sermon. And the point is, even in the middle of uncertainty, even with a lot of uncertainty, we can be confident that God will use us. That's the point that I believe the Spirit is making through this event in Paul's life. Now let me explain to you why that's true. Even uncertainty, we can be confident that the Lord is using us. First, I want to point out to you what is not expected in this passage. The section that I read for you, these five verses, come in what we'll eventually know as Paul's secondary, uh, second missionary journey. But if you look back at the end of chapter 5, you will notice that Paul and his companions did not start out on what they thought was a second missionary journey. It's a little bit like after the First World, World War that they called the war to end all wars. Nobody anticipated a second world war. Why would you? The first one was done. It's taken care of. Everything that needs to be done, pretty much. And what we have in chapter 15 at the end is Paul and his companions going to visit the churches that were already established. But when we come to our section of 16, this trip, 
has changed a bit, and most likely because of what we read at the beginning of chapter 16. Somebody new has entered the picture. In this case, it is Timothy. Timothy, who has one parent who is a Greek, the other who is a Jew. And Paul sees usefulness. He sees how the Lord might use Timothy, not only in the life of the local church, but also in the life of the churches as a whole. And so the missionary journey moves from going to strengthen the churches that already existed to reaching those places where they had not gone yet. And that desire to reach other places is what really comes into full blossom in verses 6 and following. So the question is, where will they go? Where should Paul and Silas, along with Timothy, now go? Where is the Lord calling them? Where is he leading them to go? One of the most natural places that they might go would be to Asia Minor. Now, you might not have any clue what that means, and you shouldn't feel guilty if you don't. I'll simply explain it to you. Asia Minor was the place that if you were in a contemporary missions committee with the Apostle Paul, and you're looking at the map of the Middle East, and someone were to ask, where are there no churches? Where is the gospel yet not penetrated? Where do we need to send people so that people will hear about Jesus Christ you would have agreed together as a missions committee, look at Asia Minor. There's a place with no churches. We ought to send somebody there. Now here's the really remarkable thing that you might, again, might not think about in this chapter from the book of Acts. And that is, if you suggested that to be true, I would tell you you were absolutely right. Because later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul records how he and his companions went to Asia. And not only did they go to Asia, but in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8 and 9, it says their going to that part of the world was so difficult, so terrible, they they despaired even of life, and they felt they had received the sentence of death. So difficult was the ministry that they eventually were taken to in Asia Minor. Most likely what is being referred to there goes back to Acts chapter 19, a few chapters after where we're reading tonight. In that chapter, you will notice there's an uproar because faith in Jesus Christ was threatening the sale of idols that were used to worship Artemis. And that story takes place in Asia Minor. And so here's a very simple thing you might not have realized. Eventually, Paul and his companions do go to Asia Minor. So that leads us with the question here in this section, why in the world do we read in verse 6 first, quote, they had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word word in Asia. And then again at the end of verse 7, it says, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go. Why? Why? And how do we make sense of that when we see an opportunity and we wonder, is the Lord calling me to that? There's all kinds of speculation about what it meant that they had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go to Asia Minor, that the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go. Perhaps it was a direct revelation. Silas is identified in the end of Acts chapter 15 as a prophet. Did God speak directly to him and say, you cannot go to Asia Minor at this point? 
Or was it, as it often was in Paul's missionary journeys, opposition by the Jews? Or, to speculate a bit further, maybe there was an illness that prevented Paul or Silas or Timothy from going. Or it may even been a disagreement between Paul and some of his companions. All of that is speculation. We do not know. The passage seems to intentionally leave open. In other words, it's not the point of what Paul is writing here. The point is not for us to understand why it didn't happen. The point of this passage lies somewhere else. Why could the gospel not go to Asia Minor at this point? If there is good work to be done, and eventually Paul and his companions go to do that work, even if the work was very, very hard, why is he prevented here? Why can't he go? In order to understand eventually the answer to this question, I hope, to see what the Lord is teaching us in this passage, I want you to see that there's a positive side to what God is doing as well. We need to focus on where they did go. If you look at verse 9 of our passage, it says something pretty surprising happens. God speaks to Paul through a dream, and there is a man from Macedonia who appears to him and says, come over here and help us. We need your help. We need the gospel proclaimed in this place. This place, the best way to describe the place where the gospel was needed is in what we would now call the upper portion of the nation of Greece. And if you want to know what that means in terms of churches that are eventually established, they would be the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, a letter that we heard from this morning that Dan preached from. And the city of Berea, where they were commended because they searched the Scriptures to see whether what Paul said was true. These become churches that are notable in the New Testament. They become some of the most well-known churches in the New Testament and places where the gospel work of Jesus is done in an amazing and powerful way. So if this passage says no to the Apostle Paul when he wanted to go to a place that was good, where work was needed, and eventually work was done, and instead God was saying, go to this other place, also a place where the gospel would go and good work would be done and there would be fruitful work accomplished. What in the world are we to think about in this passage? What sort of conclusions might the Lord want us to draw? I'm going to start by summarizing for you two things. First, this passage shows that there was not something inherently wrong with Asia itself. In other words, one of the choices that Paul had and that Paul desired to take was not a wrong choice. He wasn't sinful in seeking to do so. There's nothing in the passage that would indicate that Paul's desire was wrong, that what was wrong was... Paul violating the revealed will of God. If I can just pause there for a moment and stress that point, we can know that what we seek is not the will of God if what is he has revealed to us in the Scriptures would tell us not to do it. It seems like such a simple thing, but it's amazing how often we ignore that truth. But that's not the case in this passage. He's not violating a commandment of God that God has clearly given. That's not the problem. Second, I want you to notice that going to the churches of Macedonia was a very good thing. 
It's a choice, really, between a good thing and another good thing. It's not a choice between a good thing and a bad thing or a bad thing and a good thing. It's a choice between good and good. Which leads me tonight to this question, to answer this question, why is this passage here? How does this passage lead us to see that even in the middle sometimes of not knowing what the Lord is doing and where he is calling, we can have confidence that he is at work in us? Now, I'm saying that to each one of you, because even if you are not an ordained pastor, and tonight your question is not how are we going to move to Vienna, (laughs) these are still the sorts of questions that come to mind, aren't they? Maybe it's a question about your employment. Maybe it's about something else. Maybe it's a struggle that you have. You're trying to seek the Lord's will. You're not being sinful in it, and it doesn't seem... It doesn't seem to be resolved clearly. Just as for Paul, first, it did not seem to be clearly resolved. Why won't the Spirit allow us to go to a place where the gospel is needed? There are three things that I think help us on an evening like this. We're trying to discern how it is that we can know the Lord will use us even if we're not certain in the moment. There are three things I want you to consider that come from this passage. The first thing I want you to note is that you can trust God. You can actually trust God to actually lead you. It's not unchristian at all. It's not contrary to the doctrines of the Christian faith, the great doctrines of the Christian faith like adoption, justification, sanctification, to say I believe those and I believe that the Lord leads me, these are not in opposition to each other. In fact, if we believe that the great truths of our soteriology, that God is absolutely in control, that God is the one who opens our heart or we would run far from him, if we believe that is really true, that's what the Bible says, that the Bible exalts God as God, that applies not only in our salvation, it applies in the little details of your life as well. Do you believe that? I have found very often as a Reformed Christian that I can say so clearly, God is sovereign in my justification. And then in the smallest choices in life, guess what? I fall to a million pieces. My wife isn't here tonight. She's watching over the internet. When I say that, she always wonders, what am I going to say next? What I'm going to say is someone who is very wise. Guess who that is? Yes, my wife will often tell me that my lack of confidence in God shows up when I need to make a major decision. Isn't that interesting? I like to think it took her 25 years to figure that out. It probably took her about six months. I can probably come off confident about a whole bunch of things, but when it comes to making decisions, I will go through three phases, I guarantee you. I will first go through the phase where I have a lot of doubts about the decision itself that I have made. I will feel like in the moment when I am forced to make the decision, I'm just picking and I don't really know if it's the right one or the wrong one. And then after the decision is done, I will doubt whether I have done the right thing. That sound accurate? Maybe I'm the only one who does that. 
What if instead of that, I was confident that God is so great, and here's the second thing, that God is so kind that God is not only powerful enough, I find that much easier to believe than that God is gracious. It is easier for me to testify that the world and everything in it was created by the word of God than to believe in a decision I need to make that God is kind enough that he will use me even if I'm uncertain. Why is that? Because the creation of all things out of nothing does not take into account my sinfulness. God's grace is required because I am a sinner. You've heard me say a few times from this pulpit how much I'm going to miss Dan. I can't look at him right now. There's a lot of reasons for that. Maybe it's because we look at ministry similarly. Maybe it's because, you know, you work with someone for a while and then no matter who they would be, you'd miss them. This is not that way. But even though I might have the sense, boy, am I going to miss him and his family. I have no doubt that the decision that Dan and his wife have made is fully within the will of God. And it's not because I know everything that happens in the greatness of heaven. It's not because I've perched on the shoulder of the Lord as he is working things out in history. It's not true. I would be in a similar position where the Apostle Paul is saying, Asia seems ripe, Lord. (laughs) How could you say no twice? And then the Lord opens another door, as he might for a pastor. And he says, no, not that door. Take this one instead. How is it that we can feel content in the Lord's will, as difficult as it might be, sometimes as painful as it is, as much as we might not understand why, how is that possible? Because of these two characteristics of the character of God, God is so powerful. He can do things that you could never even imagine, but he matches that with a limitless grace. That means even in those decisions where you second-guess yourself, the Lord is able to move you and use you because of his kindness. There might be times where after Pastor Dan and Nora leave, they think, what in the world? We left all these smiling, happy faces, and now we're trying to find a pediatrician. Those times happen. But I can say as certainly to them as I would say to each and every one of you, even in the middle of sometimes those moments of uncertainty, the power and the kindness of the Lord is still yours. It never fails. It never changes. As fickle as I am in my decision-making, the opposite infinitely is the character of our God. And no matter where you find yourself, whether it's leaving here to go to Vienna tomorrow, 
or you've got to work out in your life or you reflect on things that have happened to you, let me assure you, and I believe that's the reason, this section is in the scripture so that in moments of striving and not always knowing what the Lord is doing, we can wait patiently and confidently in the Lord. Let me add to that a second thing that will not be a surprise to you. That the Lord can use us even if we're not certain what He's doing. This passage tells us that in a moment we can be confident not only that the Lord will use us, but also He will use us just at the right time. Just think over your own life and ask yourself the question, how often have you doubted not only the Lord's intentions, but His timing? Most of you don't know this, but my wife and I were married for five years before we had a child. That was not our design. It's not what we intended. And I can remember showing up sometimes to baptisms. You know why I love baptisms so much? Because I remember a time when I would have given my pinky fingers for that to be our child. And I can remember wrestling in my own soul, what are you doing, Lord? Why is your timing so off? Only to realize later that even if I did not know the timing of the Lord, it's not only His power and His grace that are in display in our moments of uncertainty, His timing is also good. We never know from the Scriptures why the Lord put such a hard no at this moment of going into Asia Minor, especially when later on we see Paul and his companions going there and almost being killed. You might think, Lord, why are your timing so off? If they would have gone earlier, maybe it would have been better. You might wonder the same thing. But take confidence that the Lord will use you, that he will lead you where to go, that even if there's uncertainty, at this point God is saying no to your Asia there will also be a moment in which he will tell you, go to Macedonia. It's just as certainly as the Lord used the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy in his power and his grace at exactly the right time, the Lord will do the same for you. It might not be through a dream the Lord gives you. It might not be, you would even say with the same clarity that the Apostle Paul gave, but let me tell you, this Paul who recorded this is the same Paul who, Romans, who wrote Romans 8.28. You know what that says? For God works all things together for good. To those who are called by him according to his purpose. That's your promise tonight. Wherever you are, not only believe that, that's simple to say, rest in it. Rest in it, my friend. And finally, the third thing that I want to tell you tonight from this passage, not just for Dan and Nora, but also for each one of you, the uncertainty of life and God's ability to work in it is not only because His power and grace, it's not only because God will use that power and grace at just the right time, here's the thing, we can take joy in the work of Jesus in the middle of it. Here's where I want to bubble up to the service. You know why the Apostle Paul is even making these missionary journeys in Acts 15 and 16 and so on? 
It's because before our Lord ascended into heaven, he gave his church a commission. Just like an officer in the armed forces is given a commission, you are now set apart for this particular role. The Lord did the same for the church. He said, go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you because I'm with you always to the very end of the age. That's true for us here at Redeemer. The Lord has called us into this place and time with these people, praise the Lord. I can honestly say I am glad that we together are doing this work. I'm thrilled by that. But it doesn't stop here. The same work is going on in Vienna. It's going on in Chicago and New York. It's going on from east to west, north to south, and across the world. So that even if we don't see each other face to face, we are still in union with the church of Jesus Christ, bringing the gospel to the nations and to the world. Which means even in a moment, as we sung, of sweet parting. Not sweet parting, sorrowful parting. We don't do it with regret. We don't say... Well, I begrudge you for it, brother and sister. What we say is because the Lord, even in those uncertain choices that we make, even if they're difficult to perceive, the Lord is able to use us individually and together. And therefore, we take great joy. I remember when I was in seminary, we would have these graduating classes, of course. You invest in students for a number of years. I'm sure some of you who teach at a seminary or you teach in a school, you have this moment where you reach the end of the year, you have graduation, and there's always this emotional angst in your soul because they're going off. I'm not going to see them anymore. You get kind of a similar feeling about this. It's not just that we're losing a pastor Would you think together with me that we're sending a brother and sister and family in the Lord to another place to do his work? Think back six years when they came here, all the changes that have happened, both in their family, that's obvious, but also growth and development. It's amazing. I'm very thankful for it. Wouldn't change it. Because in those moments and those days, the Lord was at work. And as he has been at work, he's at work now in them and in you. And he will continue to do that work in them, even if we don't see each other every Sunday. So I say to each one of you, including Dan and Nora and their families and their family, the Lord is with you. Even sometimes if it looks uncertain, if you want what seems to be right and the Lord says no by his spirits, he's still good, he's still gracious, he's still powerful. In the right time, he will work at just the right time. And he will do so because he has called us together as the church of Jesus Christ to pursue the things that matter most to him. Praise the Lord for his grace. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we are so very grateful tonight to open up to a passage that may seem almost incidental in the history of the Apostle Paul. And we wonder why in the world is this even recorded? It may very well be 
that our Savior in the moment at which His Spirit caused these words to be penned by the Apostle Paul recording this history, of course you knew, Lord, that we, that we would be here tonight. In these circumstances with these people, none of this is accidental to you. And we pray that by the power of your Spirit, the same one who has placed these words before us, these words would go deep into our hearts. That we would send off our brother and sister in the Lord, not decommissioning them or uninstalling, but rather sending them out to do the great work of the gospel in another place. Father, we rejoice in this together, both in the moment but for eternity, anticipating the day when there will be no separation for any child of God by time or space. There will only be complete joy in the presence of our infinite God. And so, Lord, we lay these things before you, thankful, deeply joyful in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.